2007, 17-year-old Kara Kapetsky walked out of her high school and disappeared without a trace. Nine years later, in 2016, 21-year-old Jessica Runyons left a party and she was never seen again. The two young women were trying to break off romantic relationships at the time, and both with the same man. But would there be enough to convict him? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines and an episode that has been years in the making. This has been on my list since I was making my old podcast. One of the reasons I've waited years to cover this case is because I have a very strong opinion on the guilt of the accused. Very strong. And he was waiting on trial. If I cannot remain neutral on guilt or innocence while charges are still pending, I really shouldn't be reporting on it. But now that the trial is over, here we are. Both of these cases took place in the Kansas City metro area. And one thing you need to know about Kansas City is that it is the biggest small town ever. The metro has about 2 million people, but we don't play six degrees of separation. We play two or three at most. My midwife used to babysit my dentist's kids. My oldest and I went to go get our COVID vaccines, and my other son's best friend's mom was working the clinic. That's just how things work here. So when a big case happens, the residents of the metro don't just feel affected by geography, but it's because we know the family or we know someone who knows them. It is very hard to find anyone completely disconnected from a case like this in Kansas City and a jury had to come in from clear across the state because of it. This episode is on the deaths of Kara Kapetsky and Jessica Runyans and the trial of Kyler Eust. So let's start with Kara. Kara was born in Germany while her father was stationed there. After her parents split up, she grew up in Belton with her mother and stepfather as well as her father and stepmother. Kara was a child who had plenty of parents to love her, and she had a little brother who she adored. Kara was a carefree teenager. She was very independent, and she did things her own way. In high school, this did get her into a little bit of trouble. She would skip classes at Belton High School, but in the spring of her junior year, she realized she needed to get more serious if she was going to graduate on time. She wanted to continue her education in radiology after high school, so she signed herself up for summer school classes, the ones she would need to get back on track with her credit hours. At this time, Kara was also dating Kyler Eust. They started seeing each other in the fall of 2006, and he was about two years older than her. Their relationship would be on and off, and Kara's parents knew the relationship was at least toxic. But they also knew, forbidding their strong-willed 17-year-old from seeing her boyfriend, wouldn't likely work out the way they hoped. So instead, they would encourage her to stay away from him, empower her, and just really hope she started seeing Kyler for who he was. In April 2007, Kyler and Kara were in the process of breaking up, a decision that was Kara's alone. Kyler did not want them to split. Kara worked at a local Popeye's chicken restaurant, which is a fast food place, and she had plans to see friends after her shift one night in late April. While she was working, Kyler showed up with flowers and he asked if they could hang out after work and talk about their relationship. She said no, she already had plans. Kyler left, though he texted her a few times while she was working. Then a few hours later, while Kara was standing outside waiting on her ride to pick her up, Kyler showed up in his truck. He asked Kara to change her plans and hang out with him instead, and Kara again said no. That's when Kyler grabbed her by the arm and pulled her into his truck. Then he drove off. Kara wanted out of the vehicle, but Kyler drove around for about 15 minutes trying to get her to talk about their relationship and 
their future. Eventually, he just pulled over in a parking lot of a pizza place and let Kara out. From the parking lot, she called the police and she called her stepfather. The responding officer said Kara was upset, but that she was also reluctant to talk much. She had to coax the story out of her. Kyler was brought in, and he did admit to what happened. He said that after they drove for a bit, he realized what he had done, and that's when he dropped Kara back off. He was held for 24 hours and then released with a citation. Kara's mother, Rhonda, saw cigarette burns on Kara, though Kara did not report abuse to the responding officer. It was the weekend, so Kara and Rondo had to wait until Monday to go file for a restraining order. In her application, Kara wrote that Kyler, quote, kidnapped, restrained, choked me. One month ago, choked me. December of 06, had a knife in hand and said, I'm going to slit your mother effing throat. March 07 wouldn't let me out of my home. Kara also wrote that, quote, an immediate and present danger of abuse to the child exists because I'm unsure what he will do next because the abuse has gotten worse over time. Rhonda, realizing that this toxic and unstable relationship was seriously physically abusive, told Kara she needed to cut off contact with Kyler at this point. No more phone calls, no more texts. But we know from the records that that's not what happened. Kara did stay in contact with Kyler. On May 4th, 2007, four days after the restraining order was issued, Rhonda dropped Kara off at school, but she soon turned around when Kara called her to say she forgot a textbook and her work uniform at home. Rhonda dropped those things off at the school and then went to work. Phone records confirm that Kara called her mom at 7.27 in the morning. At 9.19 a.m., Kara was seen on a security camera leaving the high school. It wasn't unusual, like I said, for Kara to skip class occasionally, but none of her friends went with her, and none of her friends knew where she was going, which was unusual. She skipped school largely to socialize with friends. This was the last verified sighting of Kara alive. When Rhonda got home from work that evening, Kara's stepfather Jim said that Kara had not come home from school. Rhonda then tried to call her, but she couldn't reach her. Then she started calling friends, and no one had seen Kara since that morning. Rhonda even called Kyler to see if he knew where she was. Eventually, Kyler called back, and Jim, Kara's stepfather, asked him, what did you do to Kara? But Kyler said he had not seen her that day. And now we're going to hit a controversial part of this case, the missing persons report. What the Belton police said happened is not what the family has said. Let's start with the first missing persons report, which did not come from the family. A friend of Kara's named Amy went to the police around 5.15 in the evening saying she hadn't seen Kara all day and no one could get in touch with her. It appears that it was written down that Kara had not been seen in two days, which was not true. According to Amy, she told the police she was concerned because she knew Kyler had previously abused Kara. She had herself seen fat lips and bruises. She also knew Kyler had kidnapped Kara about a week before. However, the part about Amy having seen the signs of abuse was not put into the report, and Amy insists she said this. Amy said that she and Kara's friends drove around looking for her, they called her, they texted her, and no one could get in touch with her. A police officer from Belton took the missing persons report and, according to him, called Rhonda. And according to what he wrote down, Rhonda told him about the restraining order, 
but said that Kara was with Kyler and she was okay. That is not what Rhonda said happened. It was also written down that Rhonda hadn't seen Kara since May 2nd, which is provably false since she dropped Kara off at school on the 4th. She even went back to bring her some things. The police say they wrote down what was told to them, but it doesn't make sense that Rhonda would have given them the wrong information. It just doesn't. But two days after Kara was reported missing, the Belton police did reach Kyler first on the phone, and then he came in for an interview. He insisted Kara was not with him and he did not know where she was. He said he talked to her on May 3rd when she called and told him she wasn't feeling well. She asked him for a ride to the gas station. He said he picked her up, he took her to the gas station, and then he dropped her off back at work. Kyler then said Kara attempted to call him around 11 a.m. on the morning she went missing, but he missed the call because he was sleeping. Other than that, he hadn't heard from her at all on the 4th. Kyler did admit their relationship was strained and that Kara was in the process of breaking up with him but he denied abusing Kara and said he would only sometimes grab and shake her. Kyler was emotional at this interview, and he spoke of Kara in the past tense, even though she had only been missing for two days, which was something the officer taking his statement put in the report. Kyler was interviewed again three days after this first interview, and he gave his full alibi. He said he slept late and missed that 11 a.m. call from Kara. Then he went to his grandparents' house around noon so that the three of them could go together to visit his great aunt, who was in a nursing or medical rehab facility. Kyler was raised by his grandparents, so they were more like parents to him as far as relationships go. Afterwards, Kyler asked his grandfather if he would pay for some gas for Kyler's truck, which he agreed to, so the two went to the gas station. After the trip to the gas station, Kyler went to a friend's apartment and then to band practice. Multiple people saw him. So, so far, the alibi sounds pretty good, except there is one glaring problem. The phone records absolutely do not support his story before at least 1 p.m., Kyler insisted he was sleeping in, yet at 8 a.m., Kyler texted Kara, apparently in his sleep if he is to be believed. Spoiler alert, he is not to be believed. The content of that text message is unknown. Then Kara called Kyler at 9.13 a.m., minutes before she left school. Kyler then called her at 9.20 a minute after she walked out the door. The calls were two minutes long and 16 seconds long, and they were billed calls, meaning they were answered. There was no missed 11 a.m. call at all. As for Kyler's alibi of being with his grandparents, Kyler called his grandfather at 1.06 p.m., so it makes it very unlikely he was there at noon and at the nursing home visiting his great aunt because why would he call his grandfather if he was standing next to him? So this is shifting the timeline out to more like 1.30 that Kyler met up with his grandparents, which gives him no real alibi for four hours after Kara walked out of the school. At around 4.30 p.m., Kyler had an incoming call from his grandfather, so we know by that point they weren't together again. And that's if they were together at all. Kyler's grandfather said they were, but no one verified it past that. The Belton police did not question Kyler's grandmother or his great aunt. They didn't go to the rehab center to find out when Kyler and his grandparents were there. They didn't check the sign-in, sign-out records. They didn't check the security cameras. They didn't even call and ask to see if any witnesses saw Kyler there. They took Kyler and his grandfather at their word. And now I'm not saying Kyler's grandfather lied for him. I'm just saying the police didn't check 
to see if he did. Kyler called a few other people and received calls, but he didn't try to call Kara that night, even after he had received calls from friends and even Kara's family looking for her. And in spite of him being in pretty constant contact with her in the days leading up to her disappearance, suddenly he has no interest in calling her. We do have confirmation that Kara was still alive at 10.25 a.m. when she called a friend named Kyle, and she spoke with him. He verified it was Kara who called and not someone else using her phone. But the content of this call put Kyler and Kara together because Kara asked if she and Kyler could come hang out. Kyle had a job interview, so he said he couldn't. Then around 1 p.m., according to Kyle, Kyler showed up at his apartment, but Kara wasn't with him. So from when Kara walked out the door of her school until about four hours later, Kyler has no alibi. That's the bottom line. I could have just said that. A text was sent from Kara's phone to an unknown number at 1 p.m. that day. It did ping off a tower in Belton, but there is absolutely no way to confirm who sent this text. But it did lead to pretty extensive searches in the area near that ping, but nothing was found. Then, less than a month later, another young woman went missing. 18-year-old Kelsey Smith was kidnapped from a Target parking lot in the Kansas City suburb of Overland Park. Her body was later found at Longview Lake, which is in a different suburb of Kansas City. Kelsey's case got a lot of national attention because it was a clear kidnapping. It was caught on security camera, the one overlooking the parking lot of the Target. This boosted the signal on Kara's case as well because a lot of the reporting about Kelsey's disappearance pointed out that another teen went missing from the area. The distance from where Kelsey's body was found and the high school where Kara disappeared is about 10 miles. The police did follow up to see if the cases were connected after Edwin Roy Hall was arrested for Kelsey's murder. He pleaded guilty, but there was never any link between him and Kara's disappearance. Though no one could prove it, Kyler Eust remained the number one suspect in Kara's disappearance. He had kidnapped her before, he had abused her, and she talked to him on the phone twice in the time frame when she was last seen alive. Over the next 10 years, yes, 10 years, people would come to the police and say that Kyler got drunk and confessed to killing Kara by strangling her. Sometimes the stories were that he fed her body to pigs, and others were that he left her body in the woods. But he never said anything that led to hard evidence or to her remains. One of the young women who came forward to say Kyler confessed was Caitlin Ferris. She dated Kyler after Kara disappeared, but then broke up with him, married someone else, and moved out of state. By 2011, her marriage was slowly ending, and she was back in touch with Kyler and told the police that Kyler had confessed to her. So Caitlin agreed to wear a wire while the FBI listened in. They flew her back to Kansas City, and she made plans to meet up with Kyler in February 2011. On this evening, they were together for six hours, and not all of this recording was terribly interesting. There is quite a bit of Kyler saying that he regretted their relationship ending and talking about getting back together since her marriage was ending. The main thing they did that relates to Carr's disappearance was they made a Ouija-style board to try to communicate with Kara. It was Caitlin's idea to do this, and this is how she got him talking about Kara. She thought she was going to get Kyler to take her to where Kara's body was to do the seance, 
but instead he took her to the woods near a family member's home. Kyler did confess to killing Kara on this recording. He said he strangled her, and at another point, he said something about how it turned Caitlin on that he killed a girl, and then it sounded like he kissed Caitlin. The wiretap confession should have been enough for an arrest, except it really wasn't. According to Kyler's explanation, he didn't confess because he did it. He confessed because Caitlin told him she thought it was hot that he killed someone. He was basically trying to have sex with her, so he was playing into this fantasy. He had text messages between them that essentially showed this. In the year after the wiretap, Kyler Eust was arrested three times, and none of them were for murder. Kyler was arrested for abusing his pregnant girlfriend, he was arrested for animal cruelty towards a cat, and he was arrested for receiving drugs through the mail with intent to distribute. In the attack on his girlfriend, she was in the process of leaving him. Kyler told her he killed other girlfriends and he would get rid of her body where no one would find it. He punched her, he strangled her until she passed out, and a couple of days after the attack, she had a miscarriage, though that was not definitively linked to the assault. However, I don't know that we can rule that out either. She has since been diagnosed with PTSD. The animal abuse charges, I won't get into the details on them, but they were dropped. Kyler pleaded guilty and got probation for abusing his girlfriend. And then he got four years in prison on the federal charges for drug trafficking. I'm just going to recap that real quick. He got probation for abusing a human being to the point she lost consciousness and still lives with trauma a decade later. He got four years in federal prison for buying some uppers off the internet. In September 2015, while behind bars on this drug trafficking charge, Kyler was interviewed about Kara's disappearance yet again, and he yet again denied knowing where she was. But six months later, his cellmate came forward. He said that after the police had interviewed Kyler, he came back to the cell and admitted to the cellmate that he had killed Kara. He needed the cellmate's help in coming up with a believable alibi. But honestly, if getting Kyler to confess on a wiretap and to a number of other friends didn't do the trick, certainly a jailhouse snitch wasn't going to move the needle on this case. Eventually, Kyler was released in 2016, and he came back to the Kansas City area, moving in with his grandfather. By this point, his grandmother had passed away. Kyler had a friend named Jackson who was living with 21-year-old Jessica Runyons. Jackson and Jessica had dated for a couple of years and then moved in together, but then things got rocky. They stayed living together, but they were sleeping apart as they tried to figure out exactly where their relationship was going. Though Jessica wasn't living at home anymore, she was very, very close with her family and saw them all the time. She grew up with this huge extended family. She had a wonderful childhood. She loved her two little sisters. Both of them were several years younger than her. And with that age difference, she sometimes acted like a second mom to them. She would help them out with things. She went to their school activities. She even baked their birthday cakes. And baking was something Jessica loved. She worked as a baker at a luxury retirement community near her home in Raymore, Missouri. And Raymore is right next to Belton, where Kara grew up. Jessica and Kyler used formed some sort of relationship, but it was never serious on her end of things. She had sent Kyler some emails over the summer of 2016 saying that she couldn't give him the relationship he wanted. And she encouraged him to mend fences with Jackson. Their friendship, as you can imagine, ended when Kyler was sort of dating Jessica while Jackson was still kind of hoping they'd reconcile. 
and Jessica was encouraging the two of them to figure things out. On September 8th, 2016, Jessica was invited over to her friend Alan's house. The plan was to hang out with him, another friend, and maybe like one other person. Kyler knew Alan as well, but he was not invited. This night at Alan's house was often reported as a party, but it was really just supposed to be a few friends hanging out. But Kyler was actively annoyed that Alan had not invited him, but had invited Jessica. Kyler ended up going to Alan's house that night, even though he wasn't invited, and he went with Jessica. We don't have a record of their communications, so we don't know for sure if Jessica invited him because she wanted him to be there or if he pestered her into it. Jessica had just had an appendectomy and hadn't even been cleared to go back to work just yet, so it's not like she was looking for a wild night out. When they showed up at Allen's with Jessica driving, Kyler was already drunk. He was very clingy with Jessica and in a bad mood. From what we've heard from two witnesses, it sounded like he was just looking for reasons to be angry. He got mad at one point because he said Jessica deleted pictures of the two of them off of her social media. Then he was angry because he thought Jessica wanted to get together with Jackson again. Then he got mad because he didn't like the music they were playing. Then he somehow got himself locked out of the house, which appears to have been on accident, and he was angry about that. And he was already hostile towards Alan for not inviting him over in the first place. Kyler eventually grew loud and aggressive enough that just before midnight, Alan said he had to go. Since Jessica drove him there, that meant she left as well. Her plan was to drive Kyler back to his grandfather's house and then go home. Alan told her to text when she got home so he knew she was safe and he never heard from her. When Jessica pulled away from Alan's house, that was the last time she was seen alive. The next day, September 9th, Jessica's mother Jamie was waiting on her to come back to the house. Jessica had a follow-up visit with her doctor that day. Even though she was an adult, she and Jamie were close and she wanted her mom to go with her. Jamie knew Jessica had not just forgotten the appointment. They had talked about it multiple times, including just the day before. This was the appointment where the doctor would clear her to go back to work after her surgery, so it was really important to her. When she didn't show up, Jamie was worried something had happened, but like a typical person, she was worried about a car accident, not anything sinister. Jamie called Jackson, who told her that Jessica had not come home the night before. She had texted him at some point around 10 p.m., saying that she was going to be out late at a friend's house. When she didn't come home, he just assumed she spent the night. Maybe she had too much to drink. But when Jamie told him that she missed the doctor's appointment, he was also worried. Jackson told Jamie to Google Kyler Eust because that's who Jessica was seeing at the time. When Jamie did, her heart sank because the first results were about Kara Kapetsky's disappearance. Jamie posted Kyler and Alan's pictures on social media saying she needed to talk to them because they might know where Jessica was. Then she called Jessica's dad and asked him to meet her and Jackson to report Jessica missing to the Kansas City police. And when they reported her missing, they made sure to note that Jessica was involved with Kyler Eust. Jamie then did something else. She reached out to Rhonda Beckford, Kara's mother. Kara's family quickly became a guide and a support for the Runyon's family as they started to navigate having a missing child. The two families have become very close over the years. On September 10th, hours after Jessica was reported missing, 
Her SUV was found on fire around 1.40 in the morning. It was found in Kansas City, Missouri. It was actually just a mile or two from the police station where they had filed the report. A search of the car did not find any signs of human remains. Meanwhile, near Windsor, Missouri, which is over an hour away, a county sheriff pulled over a 30-year-old man named Jessup Carter. In the car with him was his girlfriend at the time and later his wife, Crystal, and his younger half-brother, Kyler Eust. There had been no warrants issued for Kyler at that point related to either Kara or Jessica's disappearances. There was no be on the lookout, nothing. So they were given a ticket and they went on their way. Later that day, however, Jessup called the police and told them he knew where Kyler was and that Kyler had killed Jessica Runyon's. Jessup said that Kyler called their mother trying to get in touch with him. When he called Kyler back, Kyler asked if he could come to Kansas City right away. He needed Jessup to help with something. Jessup and Kyler were not close growing up. They had the same mother, but different fathers. And the grandparents who raised Kyler were his father's parents. Kyler's mother was sporadic in her visits with him when he was a child. So he and Jessup didn't really grow up together but they did connect as teenagers and adults. And I just get the sense here that Jessup wanted to be a good big brother to Kyler because who drops everything and drives two hours on a vague plea for help? But that's exactly what Jessup did. He and Crystal left their children with Jessup and Kyler's mother and drove to Kansas City. According to Crystal, she sat at Kyler's grandfather's house while Kyler and Jessup left. When they came back, all three of them got into Jessup's vehicle and started driving back to where they lived, which is a good hour and a half, two hours from Kansas City. According to Jessup, during the time Crystal was at Kyler's grandfather's house, he and Kyler had taken Jessica Runyon's SUV and lit it on fire but they didn't tell Crystal about this at the time. At one point on their journey back to where Jessup lived, which was in the Lake of the Ozarks area, Crystal was alone in the car with Kyler when his phone rang. Kyler answered it and said, you haven't seen her? You should probably file a missing persons report. Kyler later confirmed this call was from a friend who was looking for Jessica, but Crystal, who had been with Jessup for years at this point and knew Kyler was a suspect in Kara's disappearance, started wondering what was going on, and she was starting to get very suspicious. On the way from Kansas City to the Lake of the Ozarks, Jessup stopped the car twice. Once was at his uncle's house to burn things in a burn barrel. The other stop was when the police stopped them. It was late when they finally got to the lake and left Kyler at a trailer they knew was empty. Jessup and Crystal then went to Jessup and Kyler's mother's house. Jessup told her that Kyler confessed to having killed Jessica and that they had burned her SUV. They decided to call the police and turn Kyler in. Kyler was arrested, but he was not immediately charged with Jessica's murder. He was charged with burning her car which was what they felt they could pretty easily prove. After all, when he was arrested, Kyler had burns on him. His mugshot clearly shows the burns to his face, which look like a severe sunburn. His haircut looks absolutely ridiculous because it's all his hair that had singed off. What we don't see in the mugshot was that his hands were also badly burned. The reason Kyler went out to Jessup's place, according to Jessup and Crystal, was to lay low until he healed from the burns. So Kyler was back in Kansas City under arrest, and Jessica's family conducted large searches for her. These searches were mostly coordinated by her father. 
They were looking in the Kansas City area near where Kyler's grandparents lived and near where Jessica's car was found. The searchers actually found, over the course of a few weeks, two different dead bodies, neither of which were Jessica. Kyler made his first court appearance about three weeks after Jessica went missing. Emotions were high. Jessica's father, John, had to be restrained when Kyler was brought in. They had to get Kyler out of the courtroom while the family had to leave, and then Kyler was brought back in to face the judge. Kara Kapetsky's family was attending all these court dates with Jessica's family, trying to support them through it. To the media, Kara's mother said, I'm hoping that we'll find Jessica. I'm hoping that maybe it will lead to finding Kara. And that is exactly what happened. Seven months after Jessica went missing in April 2017, a mushroom hunter was walking through a wooded area on private property in the hopes of finding some mushrooms. He found a skull instead. The next day, on April 4th, a search of the area, which was south of Belton, found a second skull. Jessica's body, being just seven months after her disappearance, was identified quickly through dental records, but the other remains had to be sent to Quantico for the FBI to identify. In August 2017, it came back that these were the remains of Kara Kapetsky. Jessica being found had done exactly what Rhonda Beckford had hoped. It led to Kara being found. And Kara and Jessica being found together proved that these cases were linked, and the only link they had in life was Kyler Eust. At this point, Kyler was charged with two counts of murder and two counts of abandonment of a corpse. A lot of the evidence against Kyler at this point was the various confessions. In the end, it would be six or seven people who said Kyler told them he killed Kara. But there was not the forensic evidence, the slam dunk evidence that the police hoped they would find that would tie him to the victims. This case was going to be circumstantial. But in addition to those they had saying that he confessed about Kara's murder, they did have Jessup saying that Kyler confessed to killing Jessica. They also had a sort of confession recorded from a jailhouse phone call. Before Jessica and Kara's remains were found, Kyler and his mother, Janine, were on the phone and they soon began arguing. It is not uncommon at all to hear calls like this from jailhouse phone lines. The inmates are getting angry at the people who they think contributed to their life going down this path and ending up where they are now. There isn't a lot to do in lockup except sit there and think and reflect. So, I'm definitely not surprised that Kyler started blaming his mother for how his life had turned out. The argument seems to kick up because Kyler asked his mom to get him a book, and she said she would do it, but she had to wait until she got her next paycheck, and that wasn't good enough for Kyler. It's like he took it as one more time that she was denying him something or letting him down. He started going in on her about how she was never around when he was younger and how that impacted him. He said he would pack his backpack and sit by the window waiting for her to show up to pick him up for a visit, and she would just not be there. Janine clearly thought that Kyler had killed Jessica because she said things like, Killing a girl has nothing to do with your mom, and tell me where Jessica is so I can tell her family. At one point, when Kyler accused Janine of neglect, she said, so that's why you killed a girl, and he said that was part of it. She hung up on him, and he called her back. 
Kyler had been in prison before. He served a few years on those federal drug charges. He had to have known that call was recorded. So when he called Janine back, he pretty much opened this new call by saying he didn't do anything, he was innocent, whether she believed him or not. So he pretty much immediately retracted this sort of confession. Janine didn't believe him. She asked Kyler again where Jessica was, accused him of dragging Jessica into the woods somewhere, and then she hung up on him again. Kyler said he only told his mom that she was part of the reason he killed someone because he wanted to hurt her, not that he had killed anyone. He was angry and hurting, so he said what he thought would hurt her the most. And it probably did, because as far as I'm aware, they have not had contact since this phone call. Four years would go by from the time the bodies were found until the trial finally happened, and the delays were for a number of reasons. One was that Kyler's attorneys were two public defenders and one private attorney working pro bono. Missouri, like a lot of states, like probably every state, struggles to keep up with the need for public defenders. It was hard to find time for his attorneys to have an opening to work on a major murder case. Another issue was discovery. The state has to turn everything over to the defense, and there were accusations of evidence being withheld, not turned over in a timely manner, and it seems even some confusion over evidence that may have been lost or actually just never existed. There was quite a bit of back and forth over this. Another issue that came up was that Kyler and his attorneys claimed he was incompetent to stand trial. Pretty much as soon as the competency issue was resolved, COVID happened, and that delayed everything yet again. And something very big happened during all of these delays. Kyler's brother Jessup, the one who turned him in, started spiraling downward. He had been sober for years, and he started using drugs again. His wife, Crystal, and their children ended up moving out due to his behavior. Crystal ties a lot of Jessup's struggles back to him being the one to turn his brother in. In July 2018, Jessup was arrested for arson. He was at his uncle's house when the home went up in flames. When the firefighters arrived, Jessup tried to stop them from fighting it, saying, this is my domain, I started the fire, and you have no authority here. Jessup later said he didn't start the fire. He was at his uncle's house doing laundry when he noticed smoke and ran outside. Jessup was charged in the case, and two months later, he was found dead in his jail cell at the Jackson County Jail. His death was ruled a suicide. Jessup was going to be a major witness for the state. Because Kara and Jessica's remains were found together, the cases were automatically linked. The prosecution only had to definitively link Kyler to one of the murders, and that, in turn, connected him to the other. Jessup was the only firsthand witness they had. A lot of people heard Kyler confess, but they didn't see him do anything. And Jessup knew that he torched Jessica's SUV and could build out the timeline from there. With Jessup's death, the state lost a major witness, and the defense got an alternative suspect to pin things on, someone who was not here to defend himself. The trial went forward in April of 2021. The jury came in from clear across the state, from St. Charles County. An unbiased jury in the Kansas City metro would have been nearly impossible. Shortly before trial, the abandonment of a corpse charges were dropped. The defense argued that the charge itself violated Kyler's Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. He couldn't avoid the charge of 
abandoning a corpse without also confessing to murder. The state agreed to drop the charges, which was probably easier anyway going into trial because now they just have to focus on the murders. The state was going after first-degree murder charges. In Missouri, lesser offenses are always automatically included. In some jurisdictions, the prosecution has to charge every type of murder they want the jury to be able to consider. So there's always discussion over trying not to give the jury an easy out with a manslaughter conviction, but also not overcharging with first-degree murder. That's not really a thing here. If you're going to set out to prove first-degree murder in Missouri, you might as well charge it because the jury always has the option to find for a lesser verdict. The options were going to be first-degree murder, second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, or involuntary manslaughter, or obviously not guilty. If you want a more in-depth trial play-by-play, I do have two videos on my YouTube channel where I recapped the testimony for each week and a live stream talking about the verdict. It is interesting to watch a trial unfold because you may not see the relevance of a witness or a line of questioning immediately. You don't really get it until the end. So sometimes you'll include something that turns out to be very important, and sometimes you talk about something that turns out to be nothing. The benefit of this podcast version is that we can just sum up the parts that turned out to be important. The main witnesses for the state involved the parade of people who said they heard Kyler confess. The prosecution also played both the FBI wire and that jailhouse phone call with Kyler's mother. Cell phone and cell phone activity was another big part of the case, with the state showing that it couldn't be confirmed that either young woman, Kara or Jessica, used their cell phones after they were reported missing. However, due to limits in cell phone technology with certain cell phone carriers back in 2007, the prosecution also couldn't put Kyler's phone definitively with Kara's phone at any point during the day she went missing. There was just a big hole in the case against Kyler for Kara's murder because they could not connect him with her during the day she went missing. The only person who maybe sort of remembered seeing Kyler at the school that morning admitted he actually wasn't sure. No one saw Kyler with Kara, and like I said, the limits on the location services of the phones meant they couldn't put them together. And of course, the Belton police hadn't investigated Kyler's alibi in depth, so there was no concrete backup for Kyler lying, except for the phone records, which only poked holes in a few hours of the day. The defense, as you can imagine, jumped on the issues with the investigation, and it was a fair criticism. It was one Kara's family has leveled against the Belton police this entire time. Their lack of follow-up, just in verifying Kyler's alibi, was a big black mark on the investigation. But if the state couldn't link Kyler to Jessica, rather than focusing on linking Kyler to Kara, the jury could then easily make the leap to Kara since, again, the bodies were found together. Jessica's case bolstered Kara's. Now, the defense did try to get some alternative suspects in, not just Jessup Carter. But not all third-party culprits are allowed to be presented at trial. There has to be a reasonable link. The defense can't just overrun the jury with the names of everyone Kara and Jessica knew. They have to prove to the judge that it would be reasonable to suspect these other people. This process is often done before the trial. The judge will have a hearing, They will listen to this evidence against the other suspects and decide what the jury's going to hear. In this case, however, the judge decided to do this process during the trial. So there were several hours of the defense case that the jury was not even in the room for. 
One of the alternative suspects was a man named Billy. His name had come up in the investigation as someone who claimed he knew what happened to Kara Kapetsky. The story was that he was at a party where Kara OD'd, and they all panicked and hid her body. So the defense had Billy come in to testify in front of the judge, not the jury, about this tip, and Billy said he never said that. The defense had one of the tipsters testify, but Billy said he didn't even know that person. The defense couldn't show that Billy knew Kara, knew the tipster, or had even been at a party with Kara. So the evidence, quote-unquote evidence, against Billy was excluded, and the jury never even heard about him. The second alternative suspect, the one that everybody was listening for, was Jessup Carter, Kyler's late brother. When Jessup took his life in jail, a coded letter was found in his cell. Prisoners often code letters to keep the guards from knowing what they're writing about, so it's not completely clear if this note was a generic one or if it was a suicide note. The defense had a psychotherapist named Lisa Taylor Austin testify about this note, and again, this happened outside the ears of the jury. Taylor Austin specializes in gang activity, which includes these secret codes used in prison to communicate. She did not have access to the items from Jessup's cell because they were disposed of, but they were photographed, and so she could go off the photos. She said the coded note had no signs of being folded up, which meant it wasn't passed around, so this was likely written by Jessup. She said the code was just a basic number-letter exchange code, but she didn't have access to the key since the actual items in the cell were not saved. For instance, Jessup's Bible was photographed with bookmarks in it, but if you don't know which page that bookmark is on, that might have had the code, and then that evidence is gone. But Taylor Austin was pretty confident she had largely figured out the code by running it through a computer program. The problem was that there wasn't just one possible combination for this code to be correct. The most notable instance in the note is a spot where it might say kill, K-I-L-L. It also could possibly say tell, T-E-L-L, two very different words with very different meanings. Taylor Austin said she also saw words she believed meant rape, woods, and died. But there just wasn't enough there to really read off a clear confession or anything else. The judge ruled this testimony was not going to be allowed in. It just wasn't definitive enough to say that Jessup was confessing to a crime here or that it had anything to do with Kara or Jessica. They couldn't even definitively say it was Jessup's handwriting. Another witness the defense brought in that the jury did hear from was an expert in police investigations. He pointed out the flaws in how the cases were handled, particularly Kara's. He pointed out that the witnesses who all separately heard Kyler's confessions actually mostly knew each other. The confessions also got media time. The reason the confessions may be similar is because they're true or because everyone had been hearing the same source material. The expert also said the investigation was suspect-driven rather than evidence-driven and that no one was really looking for any other reasonable angle other than Kyler used. But then on cross-examination, the expert did agree there was reason for Kyler to be a prime suspect. It's not like there were any glaring spots where the evidence pointed away from Kyler, anything where he should have been ruled out. He still should have been a suspect. The expert was just saying the investigation was not conducted properly. The defense also had a witness who claimed to have heard from Kara after the state believed she was already dead, but her phone records don't back this up. 
she would have had to have had a second phone to be the one making this phone call, and there is no evidence of that. Another witness was someone who went to the police early on who believed she saw Kara on the day she went missing. She lived near the high school and said she saw Kara walk past her house. She was upset and she was talking on her cell phone. After Kara was out of sight, this woman saw a car of teen boys drive past her in the direction Kara had walked. Then she heard a scream. She didn't think too much about it until she saw a news report about Kara's disappearance, connected the incidents, and called the police. The state pointed out that the woman didn't actually know Kara, so she couldn't say for sure it was her. She was also trying to get her young children into the car at the time this all happened. So how much attention was she really paying to the young woman walking by her house? How much of a good look did she get of her to then recognize her picture on the news later? But the witness was pretty sure that this is what she saw. But then the defense ended up contradicting her testimony. Yes, they contradicted their own witness when they put Kyler on the stand. I said in my live stream at the end of week one of the trial that I did not think Kyler would take the stand, and I was 100% wrong. I will say that I still think if the judge let in more of the defense's Jessup did it evidence, the defense may not have put him on the stand. They did call a witness who said she saw Kara walking away from the school and then put Kyler on the stand, who will then testify that that didn't happen. So they contradicted their own witness. And my only thought on this is that they were still hoping not to have to put Kyler on the stand. But at this point, he was the only one who could or would tie Jessup to both Kara and Jessica. So on the stand, Kyler changed the story he had been telling for a decade. He had always insisted he did not see Kara on the day she disappeared. But now, in court, he said he lied to the police. He was the one who picked her up from school when she called him on May 4th. But he said he was not alone. Jessup was with him. Kyler said he lied to the police when they asked because he knew he was in violation of the restraining order and didn't want to get into trouble. But this doesn't ring terribly true because he admitted to police he saw her the day before, May 3rd. So he admitted he broke the restraining order, but now is saying he lied to avoid admitting he broke the restraining order, which he had already done anyway. It just doesn't make sense. Anyway, so Kyler said that he and Jessup picked Kara up in Jessup's truck. Then Kyler had to go with his grandparents to go visit his great aunt, and Kara didn't want to go with him. So Jessup said, don't worry about it. He would drop Kara off at a local skate park she wanted to go to and Kyler could go do his family obligations. When Kyler left, according to his testimony, he left Jessup and Kara together. That is the last time he saw her. Kyler then downplayed, dismissed, and explained away all of the evidence against him. The earlier kidnapping of Kara was being exaggerated. He just led her by the arm into the truck. It's not like he dragged her and she was only in the car for 15 minutes. He denied the details on the restraining order, saying that he had threatened and abused her. All of the people who saw bruises on Kara must have been lying. Kyler also explained away the confessions. He said he said things to shock people, and his confession on the wire was because Caitlin told him she thought it was hot that he killed a girl. He just wanted to have sex with her, so he's playing into it. Kyler then testified about his relationship with Jessica. He said he thought she was playing both him and her boyfriend, Jackson. He didn't really know where he stood in the relationship. Kyler said Jessica took him to the hangout the night she went missing and then drove him home to his grandfather's. He said that he was very drunk, and Jessica was trying to get him into the house and into bed. He said that while they were outside and she was trying to get him inside, he saw Jessup's vehicle drive up. He didn't really remember much past that. 
Kyler said he went to bed, and the next morning, he saw Jessica's SUV outside his house. He looked for her inside, assuming she had spent the night, but she wasn't there. He texted her and then went to work. When he got back from work, Jessica's vehicle was gone. Kyler was completely unaware anything had happened, according to this testimony. He said he called Jessup to come pick him up because he wanted to spend his birthday out by Jessup's house. It had nothing to do with burning the car or trying to recover from these burn injuries. He didn't have much of an explanation as to why or how Jessup was two hours away from his wife and children, just so happened to pull up at Kyler's grandfather's house that night, and then just so happened to go all the way back to later come back and pick Kyler up the next day. As for the burns, Kyler admitted that he got burned, but it was not from Jessica's vehicle. It was from when he and Jessup stopped at Jessup's uncle's house and they burned things in a barrel that night. So basically, Jessup was the last person seen with both women, and the only proof of it is Kyler's honest word. On cross-examination, Kyler continued to downplay pretty much every other part of his life. The other girlfriends who testified about violence and his convictions for the violence were exaggerating. Even his federal drug trafficking case was just a matter of him buying drugs off the internet. He just didn't know what a big deal that was. The state asked Kyler about his changing story. He had never mentioned Jessup being around Kara the day she went missing. He never mentioned Jessup being there when Jessica went missing. Never told them any of that. And now suddenly, with Jessup dead, he's coming out with these stories. Kyler claimed he told his attorneys about these stories years ago. It's not new information. But he didn't tell the police because he was no longer cooperating with them. In all, overall assessment of how Kyler did on the stand, he did okay. He stayed calm. He was even a little quiet. He was clear and concise with his answers. He didn't bristle or get too confrontational with the prosecutor. There was a little exchange where he accused the state of making things up. But other than that, he did okay. He didn't show very much emotion. but he didn't come across as aggressive or angry either. But in the end, he was trying to sell an impossible story. He had two women he loved who were ending their romantic relationships with him. They both went missing and their bodies were found together. He was hanging out with both of them right before they went missing. And somehow his brother just happened to be there both times and then murdered both women with no apparent motive. This would have been the coincidence of a lifetime, if true, but obviously not true. The jury didn't buy it. They found Kyler used guilty, but the state had not sold them on first-degree murder. In Missouri, first-degree murder means the person had time to deliberate before the killing. That doesn't mean a planned out murder, but just they had enough time to make a decision, even if that time span was only a few seconds. Second degree murder does remove the requirement to prove deliberation. But in the case of Kara Kapetsky, Kyler Eust wasn't found guilty of either of those. He was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. Voluntary manslaughter does require the intent to kill, that's what makes it voluntary, but it is a crime of passion. That is the Missouri definition. It's also assisted suicide. That's voluntary manslaughter as well. With this verdict, the jury was basically saying that they believe it's most likely that Kyler killed Kara in a moment of intense emotion. In the case of Jessica Runyon's, Kyler Eust was found guilty of second-degree murder. The state had not proved deliberation. Had Kyler received even one first-degree murder conviction, sentencing would be just a formality. 
Missouri state law requires the sentence to be life without parole unless the prosecution sought the death penalty, which they did not. But there is no wiggle room on sentencing for first-degree murder in Missouri. Voluntary manslaughter's maximum sentence is 15 years, and second-degree murder is life with parole after 30 years. The jury recommended the maximum sentence on both counts. Now, the judge does not have to take the jury recommendation as final say. The judge also gets to say whether Kyler serves the sentences consecutively or concurrently. We won't find out until June what the judge opts to do. Kyler could serve as little as 15 years or as many as 45. The idea that Kyler used could be back in my community in 15 years when he's in his 40s is worrisome. I don't believe the judge will give him the minimum. Absolutely not. He killed two people. I think it is more likely that Kyler will get 30 years at minimum, but I do think 45 years is possible. In that case, he won't be out until he is in his 70s. Personally, it takes a lot for me to believe someone should spend their natural life behind bars. I believe that we should save the lock them up and throw away the key for the worst of the worst. And in my opinion, that is Kyler Eust. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crime Lines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 